Well, good morning everyone and thank you to Donald for leading us in our worship and also for the others who've taken part. As we come now to the conclusion of our series in Mark's Gospel, it seems a long time since we began, way back in January, and I'm very appreciative for your prayers for me and for those who've stood in this pulpit and attempted to preach with freshness what is a very familiar story to many of us. And we've experienced God's help. The important point is not what we've understood, it's what we've put into practice. He says again, the important point is not just what we've understood, but what we've put into practice. So, we come to the conclusion then this morning. And I begin with some famous words spoken on an historic occasion. You'll know the words and you'll know the occasion. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Spoken, of course, by Neil Armstrong on July the 20th, 1969, when he became the first man to step on the surface of the moon. Now, of course, when he said those words, they didn't just pop into his head as he made his momentous descent from the steps of the lunar module. The whole event was carefully scripted to make the maximum impact on half a billion people on earth who were watching the drama unfold on their television screens. And in fact, it seems almost certain, and if you want to look on the internet, you'll see it's a great cause for debate as to whether Neil Armstrong actually fluffed his lines. He should have said, that's one small step for a man, one momentous step for mankind. Only then does it make sense. Armstrong insists that's what he actually said, but static noise obscured the A. Whatever the case, a huge part of the world's population witnessed this great event in human history. Now, over this past year, we've been focusing on events which, if true, are of far greater significance, not of a man walking on the moon, but of God walking on earth in human flesh for 33 years. The name of this man was Jesus. And we've been studying an account of his life written by a man named Mark under the title, Following Jesus. And last week's instalment concluded with the brutal crucifixion of Jesus instigated by the Jewish religious authorities carried out by the Roman government at a place called Golgotha outside the city walls of Jerusalem in Israel. But this story, unlike every other human story, does not end there, does not end with death. Today we come to the final instalment of Mark's Gospel, the last in our series, in which he recounts how Jesus is buried and then raised. And you'll find it in the Bible, in the passage the children read so wonderfully for us, earlier in the service. It will help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. Please take one, turn to page 1023. And we begin at Mark 15 verse 40. 
And I conclude, we'll conclude at Mark 16 verse 8 for reasons which will become apparent if you stay with me to the end of the sermon. And what I want to highlight first of all is that this story, unlike the moon landing, is no carefully choreographed drama scripted by Mark let alone, as some critics claim, embellished decades later by the church to convince a credulous audience. If that were the case, then I would simply say they ought to have made a better job of it. Just think for a moment, if you know the Bible and the Gospels, at the apparent discrepancies between the four different accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. How many women came to the tomb? Was it two or three? When they came, was it dark or was it dawn? How many angels were there? One or two? Did the women, as Mark says, terrified, not tell anybody? Or, as the other Gospels say, did they go away and tell the disciples as they were instructed? Etc, etc. Now, it's not impossible to reconcile the four Gospel accounts. If you were interested in this, then the best book I know on the subject is one written by John Wenham called The Easter Enigma. However, I do not attempt, I will not attempt to do this today. We are simply focusing today on the Gospel of Mark and what Mark has recorded in God's providence for us. And I want to suggest as you read the story with me and study it with me, you will find the unvarnished account, there is no evidence of spin doctors or airbrushing in this account, the unvarnished account of the most remarkable events in human history. And this not only bears the marks of authenticity to the story, but it also tells us something about the evidence which is the basis for faith. And in particular, I want to highlight three aspects, three particular pieces of evidence which should lead us to faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The first I would call this, unlikely eyewitnesses. Unlikely eyewitnesses. Jesus died at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Friday was for the Jews called preparation day. It was preparation for the most important day of the week for the Jew, which was Saturday, the Sabbath, which began, not on Saturday morning as you might think, it began at sundown on Friday evening around about six o'clock. Now, the Romans had no qualms about leaving dead bodies on crosses. They were an object lesson to those who passed by to be mutilated by birds of prey or simply taken down and left to rot. It is quite likely that Golgotha was called such the place of the skull because there were skulls lying around there of previous victims who had been crucified. But the law of Moses said that the body of a criminal hung on a tree should be removed before sunset. Let me read the words. They're in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. This is what it says. If a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave the tree on the body overnight. Be sure to bury him the same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. 
However, the Jewish authorities who had been so keen to see Jesus killed do not seem as keen to deal with the body in accordance with the law of Moses. There is no sign of them at this point. However, at this point, out of the shadows steps one of their number. A prominent member, we're told, of the council or Jewish Sanhedrin. And he asks for the body of Jesus. Now, here is the first unlikely eyewitness in the drama. The man's name is Joseph. He comes from a place called Arimathea, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Mark tells us, if you look carefully in the account, Mark tells us that Joseph, verse 43, chapter 15, was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew is more explicit in his account. He says that this man was actually a disciple of Jesus. While Luke tells us that he was not convinced, he had not consented to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin. Presumably he had not been present when they would passed a unanimous verdict of a death sentence on Jesus. However, John interestingly tells us that he was a secret follower of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews. But now following the death of Jesus, and maybe he was there on the actual event and saw him die, Joseph at last nails his colours to the mask. And Mark informs us he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Went boldly is probably an exaggerated translation. Plucked up his courage would be a better translation of the Greek word that's used there. But he takes a considerable risk to his reputation, if not more, by making his request. And he appears before Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate is very surprised. Pilate knows that victims of crucifixion usually take at least a day to die, sometimes as long as a week. And Jesus has only been on the cross for six hours. He is amazed, surprised. Again, as we've studied Mark's Gospel, I don't have time to look at it now, go back and highlight every occurrence of the words surprised, amazed, astonished in Mark's Gospel and look at the people who were surprised, amazed and astonished like Pilate about Jesus and yet did not put their faith in him. You can be surprised about Jesus. You can be amazed about Jesus. You can be astonished about the Gospel story but it may not lead you to faith in Christ. That's the tragedy. So Pilate summons the Roman centurion who confirms that Jesus indeed is dead. John's account tells us, just to make sure, one of the soldiers standing by thrust a spear into his side and a sudden flow of blood and water fell to the ground. Now the centurion would have to be sure. Why? Because if you made a mistake about anyone, you suffered the punishment that they deserved and should have suffered. So his own life was on the line. So here we have a second and likely eyewitness, a Roman centurion who confirms the death of Jesus. So Joseph is given permission to take the body of Jesus from the cross and probably he was a rich man with the aid of his servants. The body is wrapped in linen cloth and placed in a rock tomb. We learn from the other Gospels that it was an unused tomb. You could get several bodies in most tombs. There were kind of ledgers inside usually. Stacked up probably. It was an unused tomb. It actually, we read in another Gospel, it was for, it was for Joseph's own use. Another prophecy is fulfilled, Isaiah 53:12. He was assigned a grave with the rich in his death. Now, rock tombs are common in Israel, quarried out of hillsides. This one was in a garden. And as was often the case, a large cartwheel-like stone was rolled into place at the entrance to the tomb. They dug out a sort of channel and you kind of rolled it up and rolled it back in. 
It was relatively easy to roll it down into the groove, much more difficult, as we'll see, to get it out again. And so, they completed their task hurriedly in the remaining hour or so before sunset, when Sabbath came and you couldn't do any work. Now, the point of the story is obvious. The point of the story is that Jesus really is dead and really buried and this is confirmed not by his disciples, not by someone who is prejudiced, it's confirmed by these two unlikely witnesses, a member of the Jewish council and a Roman centurion. But we have missed the most unlikely eyewitnesses in the whole story. The women who were present and showed such amazing love and care for Jesus. When Jesus breathes his last, chapter 15, verse 37, look at verse 40, Mark informs us that some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph, and Salome. Now, they were not watching at a distance because they were afraid to come closer. They were watching at a distance out of discretion and sensitivity, not wanting to see the bleeding naked body of the one they left on a cross. These women were present at the death of Jesus. Uh, Donald English in the Bible Speaks Today commentary writes, I think very appropriately, for all the protestations of loyalty by the men, at the end it was the women who saw it through. And it was these women, or at least two of them, were also present when Jesus was laid in the tomb by Joseph, and another gospel tells us by Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night. They were present when the body was interred in the tomb. Verse 47, chapter 15, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Two of these women who saw Jesus die also saw where he was laid in the tomb. And this is important because two of these women, along with another one, are also present at the empty tomb. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Now this is important evidence. They know it's the right place and the right tomb. They were there only 36 hours previously or so. By the by, for those who argue, you know, all about three days rising after three days, for the Jew, any part of a day counted as a day. So Jesus died on the Friday, which was the first day. He laid in the tomb on Saturday, which was the second day. And he was raised to life on the third day. That's Jewish thinking. Alright? He was raised on the third day. Now, it is probably of very little significance to us to read that some women were present at this event. We're such prominent witnesses to these amazing events, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But any Jew of that day would be absolutely astonished. Why? Because women had such a low status in society in those days. Every pious male Jew prayed every morning and stood with his arms raised and he said, I thank God that I was not born a woman, a Gentile or a slave. Women had no legal status. They couldn't give evidence in court. You needed two Jewish males to testify to the truth of any fact. Yet, as one writer puts it, women are the prime witnesses to the events that are the foundation of Christian belief that Jesus died, was buried and was raised. So the question you need to ask yourself is, why is this the case? If, as I believe, God is behind all these events, he is planning them all. Let me say it reverently. Could he not have scripted the story better with more convincing witnesses? For, for example, we know from the Gospel records that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus and warned him not to have anything to do with this righteous man. 
How about another dream for Pilate's wife? You know, Saturday night she wakes her husband up and says, I can't sleep, it's about that Jesus. Get down to the tomb and check it out. And Pilate goes down early in the morning and at dawn there's a blast of light and the stone is rolled away. Just think how convincing it would be if Pilate became a great Christian evangelist. Or even better, how about the chief priest, you know, they're talking Saturday evening, they said, do you remember that man Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day? I think we should get down there early on Sunday morning and check there's no, you know, his disciples aren't going to do anything bad. And so they go down early on the dawn and there's these chief priests and suddenly the tomb is blasted open and suddenly they say, whoa, we made a terrible mistake. Or how about the disciples? You know, the disciples suddenly feel really guilty and they think we should go and have a quiet vigil at the tomb of our Lord and Master and they get there Sunday morning and wow, they see the resurrection. Wow, wouldn't it have been a lot more impressive if we read that in the Gospels? But no, it's some women who were witnesses to the most amazing events in human history. Now, if you believe that there is no such thing as accidents, but only providence, that God is behind all the events of history, why has God arranged the events of Easter this way? Well, the answer, insofar as we can understand it, is that God does not choose to reveal himself and his truth to people on the basis of their status, their wealth, or their intelligence. Rather, as the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, a ragbag of people if you ever knew one, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 You'll be thinking this evening with Colin that God chose to reveal the news of his birth to shepherds another group that were not allowed to bear testimony in court because of their dubious moral reputation. And he chooses to reveal the news of the resurrection of his son first to women. Now this humbles some of us, especially men. Those of us who think that our gender, our moral standing, our status, our wealth, our intelligence somehow puts us ahead of the common crowd in God's estimation. But it gives great hope to others, and you might be one of them. Those of us who have no such aspirations, those of us who fear that somehow we're excluded from God's favour because of who we, were, who we are, how we were born, the things we may have done, our lack of education, our lack of wealth and importance in the world's eyes. Listen, God delights to use people like that. Why? So that no one can boast before him. And God uses such people to reveal himself and such people to be witnesses for him. Again, Donald English comments very helpfully. It was not the status of the witnesses, but the truth to which they testified, which was the ground for believing. So, let's turn to something secondly now, to that truth that is the ground for believing, the evidence for faith. First of all, unlikely witnesses. Notice secondly in this story, unexpected events. Now, despite the fact that Jesus had told his disciples on at least two occasions, Mark 8.31 and 10.34, it's recorded, that he would rise from the dead after three days, 
Not one of them understood it. Not one of them expected it. Not one of the disciples showed up at the tomb at all on the third day. Not till they were told to. And the women who did went there for another purpose. To complete what had been done hastily on Friday late afternoon, early evening. And so when the Sabbath is over, at sunset on Saturday, the shops open again, and they're able to go out and buy spices. And the next morning, at the earliest possible light, they set out for the tomb to undertake their task. Not a pleasant one, in a hot climate, with a body that had been, as far as they understood it, decomposing for two nights and a whole day. The last thing they expected was to find that Jesus was alive. No, the problem which they seem to realise as they make their way in the, in the gloom is suddenly they think, hang on a minute, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb? If they'd been aware that Pilate, at the instigation of the Jewish authorities, had also put a seal on the tomb and a squadron of soldiers were guarding it, they'd have been even more worried. But they need not have been concerned, for notice in this story that their actions were unnecessary. First of all, they didn't need to anoint the body of Jesus. Why not? Not just because Jesus had risen from the grave, but because someone had already done it before. Do you remember in our series? Mark chapter 14, just a few days previously. A woman with an alabaster jar of very precious ointment had broken it and poured it over Jesus on his head. And when those present had criticised her for wasting money which could have been given to the poor, Jesus replied, Mark 14 verse 6, Leave her alone, why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them any time you want but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So although they did this with the best of intentions, any anointing of the body of Jesus at the tomb was unnecessary. And so was the removal of the stone. For when they get there, they discover it's already done. When they looked up, it's kind of, you know, they're coming through the gloom, they come there, and then they suddenly look up and see, the stone's rolled away. They saw the stone, which was very large, and had been rolled away. Now the question is, why was the stone rolled away? What was the reason for the removal of the stone? The reason the stone was rolled away was not to let Jesus out. You know, Jesus had been risen, raised from the dead, and he couldn't get out. Somebody had to come and roll the stone away. To... Listen, the resurrection of Jesus made it possible for him to walk through rock walls and walls of houses. No, the reason the stone was rolled away was not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. So what do the women do when they enter the tomb? They enter the tomb, probably having to stoop down, and they see, not the body of Jesus, but a young man dressed in white. Now again, if you were scripting this, listen friends, if you and I were scripting this, we'd have been much more upkey about the young man dressed in white. I'm sure most people, most artists, would have added a few wings and bright lights, you know? But although we know that the young man is an angel from the other accounts, He's not at all like the usually imagined pictures of an angel. He's described as sitting on the right hand, which is the favourable side, the propitious side. But in spite of that, these women are astonished and afraid. They are alarmed. You see, 
nothing is turning out like they expected and nothing like we expected. Notice an important point here. Okay, here's a trick question to ask your friends. Who were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? The first eyewitness of the resurrection, most people say women. The answer is no. No human witnesses saw the resurrection. The first eyewitness of the resurrection were angels. And presumably demonic powers who realised that they were defeated. Led in triumph by Christ as Paul puts in Colossians 2 I think it is. Very interestingly, again, just as shepherds were told by an angel what had already happened, the birth of Jesus, so the women are told by an angel what has already happened, the resurrection of Jesus. They're not eyewitnesses, they're earwitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus as they receive a message from this young man, this angel. The women are told by the angel, verse 6, you are looking for the right person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, yet there's no mistake, you've not turned up at the wrong place. But you're looking in the wrong place. He is not here, see the place where they laid him. There is no mistake, this is the tomb where the crucified Jesus was laid. But the women are told that he is no longer here and they're invited to see for themselves the tomb is empty. Why? Because he is risen. He has risen. Sometimes we say and sing, Christ rose from the grave. But more accurately, and far more often in the New Testament, the verb is passive. He has been raised. And the reason for this is that Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. No, God the Father raised his son from the grave and in doing so demonstrated that his sacrifice for sin was accomplished. If this is not the case, then as the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth in chapter 15 of his first letter, we are still in our sin and we worship simply a dead hero. But God has raised him from the dead. His sacrifice on the cross for sin that we looked at in the last two weeks, dying in our place, was it a success? Was it a failure? On the third day, God raised him from the dead, demonstrating it is a success. Finished. Once for all. That is why Paul writes in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. What's justification? It means being put back in the right relationship with God. If Jesus is still in the grave, then not one of us can be put in the right relationship with God, justified. But he's been raised from the dead, he can be put right with God. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus is infinitely more important than a man walking on the moon. After all, let's be honest, friends. 35 years on from Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. In what way has that been a giant leap for mankind? But the resurrection of Jesus has meant that 2,000 years on, millions of human beings have been able to take a far greater leap from earth to heaven. The question is, are you one of them? Have you examined the evidence, this compelling evidence, these unlikely eyewitnesses, these totally unexpected events, and have you put your faith in the risen Jesus? So Mark's account rings with truth. But there is a third and final piece of evidence. Just stay with me, alright? Which we can call uncertain endings. Now, look at the Bible in front of you. 
Mark 16. How did Mark end this gospel, this account of the life of Jesus? How did he end the story? The answer is, you'll be glad or not glad to know is, nobody knows. If you grew up with the authorised version of the Bible, which I did, then you, Mark's Gospel finishes with Mark 16, verses 9 through to 20. What is commonly called the longer ending. Now, with very few exceptions, almost every scholar who studied the New Testament, including those who are evangelical by commitment to believe in the Word of God, are convinced that these verses were not written by Mark. Now, you can check this out for yourselves. Uh, the NIV says there that earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9-20. They were not accepted by most of the early church fathers in the first centuries of the church. If you read them, and we don't have time to read them today, if you read them, they're not in the same style of Mark as Mark. And they don't really follow on from verse 8, very naturally. What seems to have happened is that some well-meaning scribe believing that verses 1 to 8 left everything in the air, added a compilation of material from other Gospels and accounts of the life of Jesus and from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, though not the unrestricted promises of supernatural powers given to every follower of Jesus in verses 17 to 18 uh, about picking up snakes, drinking poison and so on. And while much of this material found in these verses is useful material, especially the challenge to faith and, not, and belief, seems as though Mark didn't write them, which is why I don't plan to spend time preaching on them, so I'm preaching through what I believe is Mark's Gospel. There is another ending to the Gospel. If you've got a, a revised standard version of the Bible, you'll see a footnote with what's called the shorter ending. If you've never read it, this is what it says. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they'd been told and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now, you don't need to be a literary critic to recognise that that doesn't fit in with what goes before. It's nice stuff. It's just the kind of thing an editor would have written later on. So, if neither of these is genuinely written by Mark, how did he end his Gospel? Many people believe that we don't know because the ending is missing. The missing ending. There's all sorts of wonderful theories about what happened. Here's Mark writing his story of the Gospel. All right? He's writing at a time of great persecution. And as he gets towards the last chapter, he just finishes verse 8 and there's a knock at the door and there's the soldiers come to arrest him and so he stuffs his scroll away there and he never quite finishes the story. That's a nice story but there's no evidence for it whatsoever. What is far more possible is that, as you know, there was no mass printing in those days. People wrote on scrolls, rolled them up, and sometimes they got torn. Many people believe that the ending of Mark's Gospel was torn off, the original, and we don't know where it is, and we probably never will know where the ending is. However, more recently, there's been growing support for the view that Mark actually intended to finish his Gospel at verse 8. Is that the real ending? Trembling and bewildered, the women went and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now this may seem a strange way to end the Gospel of the life of Jesus. It's even stranger in the original Greek because it ends with the word because. The Greek works that way around, but don't worry about that. One commentator says Mark is either intolerably clumsy or incredibly subtle in how he ends his Gospel. 
if he did end it this way, just stay with me a moment, if he did end it with it this way, notice how the story finishes. The angel concludes his message to the women with a command. Verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. There is a renewed commission to the disciples in general and to Peter in particular. This is very poignant. Most people believe that Peter, or many people believe, that Peter was the source of Mark's Gospel, the one Mark sat down with him and took notes from. And if this is the case, here's Peter saying, and don't forget to put in the bit that Jesus especially remembered me, even if after I'd failed him, he said, go and tell his disciples and Peter. The angel's words also remind Peter and the other disciples that Jesus had predicted all this and promised he would meet them in Galilee. If you've been in our study, do you remember what he said in chapter 14, verses 27 to 28? Jesus said to the disciples, on the night of his betrayal, you will all fall away, it is written, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, if that is the case, you would expect the last verse, verse 8, to say, and the women went out and told the disciples who spread the great and glorious news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Who would end the gospel with verse 8? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Only an honest reporter who tells the truth about the normal reaction of what happens when you're touched by heaven, by an angel, with the word of the Lord. Oh, we know the story so well, but listen, were you there when they crucified my Lord? It makes me tremble. Tremble. Brings home the impact of it, doesn't it? This is not some bland kind of story. This is mind-blowing. You come to the tomb. In the gloom. Downcast, despondent. The stones rolled away. And an angel speaks to you. What's your reaction likely to be? Run back down the passing and go tell it on the mountain? Trembling. Astonished afraid. Oh, I've no doubt that when they gathered their wits and think these through, these women, as the other Gospels tell us, did go and tell the disciples and Luke tells us when they did they didn't believe them because their words seemed to them like nonsense. (laughs) This is truth. It's the normal reaction. You see, somehow, as we've gone through this Gospel, it's struck me again and again, somehow we think if we had been there personally, When Jesus walked the earth, we would have believed in him. And certainly if we'd met the resurrected Jesus, we'd have not been in any doubt at all. And if we'd been there on the mountain when Jesus was ascending into heaven and he gave the great commission, we'd be be more enthusiastic about evangelism and telling our friends about Jesus. Listen, even Matthew records in his Gospel, another piece of honest reporting, Matthew 28, verse 17, Here's Jesus appearing for the last time. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And then Matthew adds, but some doubted. Even then they doubted. Listen, even video evidence would not be convincing. You know there are conspiracy theorists who believe and produce what they say is compelling evidence that Neil Armstrong never walked the surface of the moon and that it was all an elaborate fake by NASA to upstage the Russians. 
one day there will be incontrovertible evidence. The Bible says one day every eye will see him. When Jesus returns the second time. But until then, believing is not seeing, but nor is it blind faith, a leap in the dark. It is faith based on the evidence of ear witnesses like Mark who wrote his gospel which we've been reading and examining for all of 2004. And if you've been here, the important question is, what is your response to the evidence? What is your response to the evidence? Our final conclusion of the series, this sermon. Stay with me five more minutes. However Mark ended his gospel... The conclusion we have is that which God in his providence who overruled the preservation of scripture has left with us. Whatever viewpoint you believe. If it ends at verse 20, verse 8, whatever it is. But let me say something in conclusion if it finishes at verse 8. Notice the theme. It is back to Galilee. The angel's message tells the women to tell the disciples that Jesus has gone ahead of them into Galilee. Now, that is significant. In the NIV application commentary on Mark, David Garland writes, the command to go to Galilee does make one thing clear. Jerusalem is not the centre of God's movement. The disciples' future lies elsewhere. Jerusalem has become the city of the doomed and fruitless temple, the stronghold of hostility to the gospel, the place of Jesus' savage execution. In the Gospel, Galilee has been the place of calling, faith, compassion, healing, power and authority. By going back to Galilee, where Jesus will be, the disciples go back to the promising birth of their call to discipleship. There they can regroup and begin again the journey of discipleship. Galilee is about following Jesus. Galilee is about following our verse of the year, which I hope is not a bumper sticker, but a reality. Back to following Jesus. Jesus said, you should know the verse by heart, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now this is a challenge to three groups of people here today. In particular, I believe, and I just want you to stay with us. First of all, it's a challenge to the failed believer, the failed follower. Maybe like Peter, you've failed your master. Maybe you're sitting in Charlotte Chapel this morning and you've blown it. Or you would never have believed it possible a year ago that you are spiritually where you are on the graph today. Maybe a year ago the graph was high and you were walking with Christ and everything seemed fine and now you're down in the pits and you've failed your Lord and Master and you would never have believed it possible you've failed Jesus. Now here is a message which offers hope to you if you fail. The word of Jesus to Peter says, failure is not fatal. It's a renewed call. Go and tell his disciples, and Peter, I'll meet with you. And you need a fresh meeting with Jesus, and a fresh call to him. It's also a challenge to the fearful follower. Maybe you're like Joseph of Arimathea. You're a kind of secret believer. But you're afraid to confess Jesus openly, because of what others might think or even do. And I want to say to you, if you're in that category this morning, it's time to step out of the shadows and confess Christ personally. 
maybe publicly. God has given us a graphic way of doing it. It's called baptism. You stand up and nail your colours to the mast in public and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's public. You invite your friends along. You don't do as people occasionally ask me. Could I not do it quietly, Pastor? Come along and do it in my bath at home. You follow Jesus publicly. And it's a great way to do it. A visual way to let the world know that you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you need to identify yourself, as every Christian should, with God's people. There's a meeting tonight after the evening service. If you want to know what it means to belong to this particular church, this family of God's people. The point of it is, I always say at these meetings, the point of it is not for me to convince you to join Charlotte Chapel. We'd be delighted if you joined Charlotte Chapel, if that's where God wants you. The point of it is that if you're a Christian, you need to belong to a local church of God's people. You cannot sit on the fence and be a lone ranger. And my experience is increasingly in our society, and I don't want to hammer young people, I know where where you're at and, and what it means, but there's an increasing lack of commitment of people who are prepared to do that. Oh, you're in Charlotte Chapel today. Next year, you might, next term, you might be in P's and G's in the term after. Well, that's go to Curvis. That's fine. There's no problem with that. But once you've found the church, stay with it. Become part of it. It's vitally important. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian in the New Testament. All of them belong to God's people. If you want to know more, come tonight. Finally, the call of Jesus today may be to the first time follower. Maybe you've been coming to Charlotte Chapel and you've heard all the evidence now. That's it. This is Mark's Gospel. And the problem with many of us is not the evidence. It's our willingness to believe the evidence and to put our faith in Jesus, the one who died for your sin, rose again to put you right with God. And maybe today is your opportunity Respond to Jesus. Take up the cross. Follow him. You see, all of us are left with unfinished business. There's a needy world out there. And we need to take the good news of Mark, the good news of Jesus, into our needy world by taking up the cross and following Christ. Let's pray together.